For WCYB Digital Radio, I'm Melissa O'Leary. Today's topic is election security. Joining me is Andrew Shoka, a U.S. Army veteran who presently serves as the Senior Technical Program Manager at the U.S. Special Operations Command. He previously served in roles at the U.S. Army Cyber Command and the Cyber National Mission Force. Also joining me is Teresa Payton, founder and CEO of Fortalis Solutions and author of Manipulated Inside the Cyber War to Hijack Elections. So Andrew, election security in many ways is a whale sandwich of a problem. Can you identify some of the domestic and international contours of the problem to help us get started in this conversation? A whale sandwich is probably the best analogy I've heard for this. I think what underpins all of this is the stratification of election security as a problem. It's something that really personally impacts us on an individual level. We vote in elections, we have local representatives, but elections impact us on a very national and broad basis. So it's this unique kind of problem that transcends both in a very personal way, but also in a very kind of wide ranging way. Amplifying that, obviously, is the immense and focused impact that election outcomes can have, and particularly for security concerns for elections. And I think that reflects in the periodicity of funding for this issue. Election security, the history of really serious congressional-level funding, started back in 2018 to the Help America Vote Act, which was really a watershed moment for serious national-scale funding for states and local precincts and districts for election security. And since then every two years or so, right, 2020, 2022, and now 2023 ahead of the 2024 election, Congress sort of takes this issue up and starts applying funding to it. And that periodicity is something that really drives the ability for predictability and availability of funds and expertise for this issue. That's really interesting. Question for you, Teresa, because your background's really in misinformation. Andrew, you talk about periodicity in a congressional appropriation sense. That's a really long, drawn-out process, whereas, Teresa, I would assume that you might hold that many of our adversaries are evolving at a pace which very, very far eclipses how quickly Congress and our domestic authorities can move. What are your thoughts on misinformation in the context of our current public policy construct? This is a very tough issue. And because free and fair elections are really the cornerstone of our democracy, misinformation, which can transcend into voters voting a certain way, and in some cases, some voters deciding their vote doesn't matter, and then the tragedy is they don't vote at all. So you've got these misinformation and disinformation campaigns and combating them is like you talk about the whale sandwich. This is kind of the whack-a-mole game that we're playing on combating them. And generationally, each generation that is old enough to vote in the United States consumes information and news information differently. So you've got one demographic who focuses on the nightly news or the morning news, and they go to trusted, vetted, stalwart news media organizations. And then you have other generations who much of the news that they get is from social media platforms such as TikTok or private messaging groups. And this is where misinformation can really kind of take root and take off. And the peddlers of misinformation are both domestic and international. To your point, presidential elections every four years, local elections every year, but misinformation and disinformation campaigns, that's daily. Great point. Andrew, what are your thoughts on how Congress and other entities within the government can solve for this problem, given the scale and speed? 
I think, especially when you talk the speed by which this gets addressed with legislation and funding, it's much easier, like Teresa alluded to, with how we consume media to have the tendency to take the issue more seriously when it seems more immediate in an election cycle. Of course, it's very easy to see the immediate impact of it. But really, I think what keeps me up at night isn't necessarily these national scale mass vulnerabilities in election devices like voting machines. Really, it's the tiny district out in the Midwest or here on the East Coast who they're low local elections office hasn't gotten access to a big slice of that funding or hasn't had the ability to just fund you know, their county's IT department. So I think really when it comes to making funds available, it's making them predictable and then enabling these state and local offices to spend them meaningfully on impactful, realistic, and applicable cybersecurity solutions. And I think what we've seen pretty much every two years with HAVA funding is that most states spend less than 50% of the funds that are allocated congressionally. So I'm encouraged by the level of funding that you know we see in legislation, but I think there's still certainly more to be done on education and providing these resources down at the state and local levels. That's really staggering. 50% of funding is left on the table. Teresa, just based on your work in state and local issues, why do you think that is? Manpower. You can have all the funding in the world, but if you don't have the manpower to develop the plan and execute against the plan, you're not going to be able to spend the funding. It's actually very similar to sort of the private sector business world. You can allocate funding for a project, but if you don't have the right skill set and the right amount of people to work on the project, you can have all the money you want, but you can't make up for lost time with a lack of staffing. And I think that's something that we're seeing. Andrew, you even mentioned your concern around it's the smaller districts that could really be a challenge. And I agree with you there. I think it's less around some type of wide scale cyber attack. I mean, that's concerning, of course, I think harder to execute and orchestrate because of the differences in voting processes and technology and operations. But it is interesting. So we've got the funding. It doesn't sound like we have the staffing to pull off what needs to be pulled off. When it comes to the staffing, Andrew, have you seen models that have worked in different areas of the country that could be applied elsewhere? When I did a little bit of work for some local and state level political party offices here on the East Coast, I think what I found was the immense disparity between urban population centers with a larger or more proportional congressional representation, more likely to receive more funding and have more predictability on staffing. Generally, we're in a better position to make improvements to providing support for campaigns in their state, providing free or no-cost services to some of those party offices and then the State Department of Elections itself. I think a really key piece of this, which I think Teresa alluded to as well, is the talent pool is certainly not increasing at the rate with which it needs to, or the demand continues to outstrip our ability to produce quality cybersecurity talent to address it. I think when it comes to election security specifically, I'm really encouraged by some of the work that some great nonprofits are doing right now with making low and no cost cybersecurity services available to campaigns and party offices. And then also some of the programs that large technology companies have out of their own free will and volition taken it upon themselves to provide these services at free or low cost. So I think you can see a way to apply these resources in a way that maybe helps mitigate that shortfall. But I really, unfortunately, I think it's just going to continue to be a persistent issue with the lack of cybersecurity talent facing the demand for it. Andrew, an interesting point that you brought up, there's not necessarily, from your perspective, vulnerabilities in voting machines and all of the areas that there's a lot of focus on. Where do you think the top vulnerabilities are kind of in the process that need to be addressed? 
I think certainly there's a lot of great work being done for physical security of election-related assets, and those are always high visibility and tend to grab headlines. But in my experience with going out and you know looking at what is your average county in the state of Virginia or what is your average county out on the West Coast, what does their web presence look like? What is their Department of Elections or Department of State? What does their web presence look like? How stable and how supported are their IT services? And with what I've seen on research there, I think what tends to be addressed every two years is a lot of the lack of professional IT services, let alone IT security expertise on securing digital footprints of state and local party offices, state and local government offices for elections, and then political campaigns, especially. I think just basic IT services, email, websites, managed services really tend to be a consistent issue when that funding and that expertise isn't available predictably. Totally agree. Teresa, I think what we see often in our practice is that cybersecurity and physical security are hand in glove. Are there any physical security considerations that we should include in this conversation when it comes to elections, especially in local jurisdictions? Yes, I think for starters, part of the reason why we may not have the staffing across the states to pull off secure, seamless, easy to vote in elections is the physical threat against the volunteers and against the state employees that may have responsibility for elections. And for starters, we need to, as a country, say that is absolutely unacceptable and it needs to come from the top down, whatever the sitting president is of the administration, from the media, local law enforcement, governors need to all say that no matter what your feelings are on the matter, the physical violence and vandalism is never okay. And so that needs to be discussed. We also need to make sure that we do have physical security accounted for in the budget, staffed for in the budget, not so that it intimidates voters from not showing up, but just so that everybody feels safe. And there's a way to, if you see something, say something and report something. And then Andrew, I like what you discussed there as well as really understanding the digital footprints of both the employees and the volunteers to just ensure that from a social engineering standpoint and a physical safety and security standpoint, that they are safe and secure. You can't stop everybody you know, who has an odd thought who wants to carry that out in the kinetic sense, but we can definitely send a message that peace and allowing people to vote the way they want to vote that's what our democracy is founded upon. I agree with you, Melissa. We really have to also speak about physical security because physical security and cybersecurity are very much hand in glove. Well, as we kind of come to the end of our time together, I wanted to come back to the concept of the whale sandwich. And unfortunately, as we head into 2024, all of these issues that we've discussed are not going to be resolved. So Teresa and Andrew, a question to each of you is, where do you think we can make progress this election cycle? And I'll start with you, Andrew. Looking back, you know, reflecting on six years now of really starting to fund this issue and take it as seriously as we have. I've been really encouraged by the progress across the whole of government on collaborating and cooperating across departments and agencies on getting down to where elections happen and down at the state and local level. Looking ahead, there's some really exciting work going on in the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency with providing some of those no-cost cybersecurity, physical security assistance down to local election offices. So I think just 
continuing to support the work that CIS is doing, you know, the work that the state departments of elections are doing, and helping to plan ahead on not just when we're in the middle of the election cycle and when it grabs headlines and it's in front of us nonstop on the news cycle, but providing responsible, consistent funding to the agencies and departments tackling this out on the front lines. I think, again, the trajectory has certainly been upward. I'd expect that to continue here in the near term. Very interesting. And you, Teresa? I agree with everything Andrew said there. And then I would layer in, we should be starting yesterday on public service announcements, both at a federal and a state level. Elections are very much run by the states. But on the federal level, letting the states know and letting citizens know that there are resources available for secure, free, fair elections, as well as from a state perspective, public service announcements about how to do early voting if you're going to be out of town or unavailable on actual election day and making sure that's being portrayed across trusted vetted news media as well as social media. And then from a federal perspective, because you have the enterprise architecture to do something like this, making sure across all the different social media platforms that people know how to get to trusted vetted news information to make the right decisions for themselves and to get up to speed on issues that matter to them most and understand who those candidates are. And then as it relates to trending misinformation and disinformation campaigns, we've got a track record that has some hits and some big misses on really helping people sift and sort through misinformation and disinformation. And I think the best thing we can do is just allow people to sort of sort through it all, have an easy way for them to report that they believe they are seeing misinformation and disinformation. And then we really do need public service announcements on civics, helping people understand what their rights are and where to go if they feel like their rights are being violated. And the last thing I'll leave everybody with, South Korea found that people respond to being pointed out that they might perhaps be falling prey to misinformation or disinformation campaigns if you use humor versus embarrassing them and saying you were duped. And so they actually have a campaign called Humor Not Rumor. And what they do is they have professional comedians who take misinformation and disinformation and in a comedic way point out why it's misinformation and disinformation and again in a comedic way point people to the truth. And I don't know about you, Melissa and Andrew, I think we could all use a smile and a laugh as we go into the election cycle. So maybe there's something to the humor, not rumor methodology that South Korea deploys. That's very innovative. Well, Andrew and Teresa, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. For WCYB Digital Radio, I'm Melissa O'Leary, Partner and Chief Strategy Officer at Fortalis Solutions. Joining me today were two esteemed guests discussing election security as we approach the 2024 elections. For more of our content, visit cybersecurityventures.com. 